Lord, uh, thank you for your blood. Thank you that you loved us with an everlasting love and you see in us something that we can't see in ourselves, a potential, God, that you've made us in your image to be like you, God, but we need your spirit for that. We need your word. We need your refining fire for that, God, to make us new and whole. And Thank you for your word, and God, would you speak it to us this morning? Would you help us to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church uh, this morning in Revelation? We love you, Lord. We thank you for your church all over the world. We pray that you would bring your church closer to you and bless Israel and keep them safe in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're picking Revelation up in chapter 2, verse 18, and we're going to cover through verse 29. Right, little Timmy? Right, bud? But the title of this message in our series, Revelation, The Time is Near, is I Know Your Works. I Know Your Works. That could be a good thing or a bad thing. I Know What You Did Last Summer was that movie that came out so many years ago, right? I don't even remember totally what it's about, but they did something wrong and somebody knew what they did, right? Or it could be a good thing. I, I, your boss comes up to you and says, I've noticed what you've been doing lately and that's been good. So uh, when it comes time for a raise season, you, you know I'm going to remember you. You know that, that statement, I know your works, depending on what you've been working on, can be good or bad. And remember, as we go through the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's not the revelation of judgment, it's the revelation of Jesus. Remember, verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. For the time is near that we need to keep these things. We need to hang on tight to them because the time is near. The time is near. Um, recently, I misplaced my wedding ring and I refuse to believe that it's missing forever. I need to hold it nearer and tighter uh, for the time is near. The time is near. I hate going out without it on. And as believers, we should feel the same way. We've the devotion read this morning said, you know, if you've lost God in your time of prayer, where you'll find him is in your time of prayer. If you've lost him in your reading of the word of God, get back to the reading of the word of God. You'll find him there. But previously in Revelation, we saw John, the apostle John on the island of Patmos exiled there for being a believer. Uh, as uh, church history would tell us, because uh, the powers that be wanted him dead and they couldn't kill him. So they exiled him. A death by exile, so to speak. We saw the vision that he had of the revealed Jesus Christ in power and glory with flaming eyes and feet of fine brass as refined in fire. I can only imagine that's going to be awesome. We saw that uh, Jesus was walking amongst the seven lampstands with seven stars in his hands. The seven lampstands were the churches, the seven stars were the messengers of the churches. And so far we've looked at his message to, to three specific churches uh, we remember that those churches were churches in that day and age, in that time period. They're also uh, could be classified as three church periods in, in history, but I believe also in some sense of the words, uh, three types of churches that you might even find uh, today across denominational lines. But Revelation 2.5, the message to the loveless church in Ephesus uh, was, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. We remember that Jesus has the ability to remove the lampstand from the church, remove his spirit from the church, remove the church's ability to shine for Jesus. There's a lot of churches, so to speak, quote unquote, that word, I use that word loosely, that shine for things today that aren't Jesus. I believe their lampstand 
is either about to be removed or has been removed. There was a message to the persecuted church in Smyrna. In Revelation 2, 5 and 10 it says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, Jesus says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do not fear any of those things which are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. That this church was a persecuted church, and that although it might feel like a long time, Jesus said it's only going to be ten days, so to speak. It's going to be a short time that you're persecuted, but you need to hang on to it because it's going to be hard and tough. And last time we looked at the message to the compromising church, Pergamos meaning mixed marriage. Revelation 2.17 says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That this church hung on to false doctrines. And Jesus said, The sword of my mouth, the word, my very word will fight against you. And as believers, we talked about, man, the very last thing we really want to come against us is the word of God. We should be instead wielding the word of God, using it in our lives and, and not have it turned back around on us. And to recap, uh, to look at the meaning of the church's names, we see Ephesus was the desired one. Smyrna uh, comes from the word myrrh or death, you know, that death fragrance. And it's interesting that they're persecuted to death. Ephesus was desired, and yet they had no love. Pergamos means mixed marriage, and they were polluted. They had brought in other doctrines, and the word of God came against them. And today we're going to look at Thyatira. Uh, and they were tied with Semiramis. They had this connection with Babylon, Dagon, the fish god, and this whole sort of, uh, you, could, you might want to call it a conspiracy theory, but it's not. You know, When you really look into it, uh, it may sound funny, but it, it has a lot of bearings in reality. Uh, and perhaps even roots of Catholicism as we look at the Roman society and how it birthed uh, some amalgam of the church and Roman paganism into Catholicism. Sardis was the remnant. Philadelphia was brotherly love, and Laodicea was where the people rule. But again, today we're looking at the corrupt church in Thyatira. Thyatira, and this—if you're heading in, the, in your Bible, the same as mine it says corrupt. And we think about the word corrupt, and the dictionary definition is having or showing a willingness to act dishonestly in return for money or personal gain. Uh, when it comes to computer programs, uh, a lot of times at work, the client will send us files. Uh, and sometimes they end up being corrupted. Let's say that this file is corrupted. Either I'll open an image and half of it is green because it hasn't fully loaded, or the file is just unreadable. And that's what this word corrupt means. It means un made unreliable by errors or alterations. Corrupt. Um, and in uh, more of an archaic form, it means contaminate or contaminated. That this thing is corrupt because it's been contaminated. And these are hard words to think about for the church. That it, the, a willingness to act dishonestly in return for money or personal gain, made unreliable by errors or alterations, or contaminated. These is a word you might think about a politician or a used car salesman, perhaps. That they're corrupt, they're contaminated. They act dishonestly to get whatever they can money, power, you to buy that old beater of a car. Again, hardly a description we think of for Jesus' body, the church, that Jesus' body would act dishonestly, would act for personal gain, the one who died on the cross for everyone else's gain, made unreliable, that Jesus' body is unreliable, has errors in it, 
or alterations. You know, we talk about augmenting our bodies, but would you really want, do you think God's body was altered? It was with holes in it from the cross. But Jesus' body was not contaminated. That's hardly, again, a description we'd want for his body or the church. You know, Israel is his people and the, the church is his body. And it's hardly something we'd want to be as believers. I don't think you, any of us would want to be labeled as corrupt or be considered corrupt. And I don't think any of us would want to believe that we go to a church that is corrupt. The place we've attended since we were children, the place we go to every Sunday, we give our money to, we give our time to, it's corrupt. Because that might mean that we are corrupt. That everything we believe in might need to have a shakedown. And part of these letters of Jesus to the church is that shakedown. Hey, wake up. Get woke. There's something corrupt here. And that's what this letter to uh, the church in Thyatira is. But what does the world think of the church and of Christianity today? Do they not think of it as corrupt? You know the world is corrupt. I know that they do corrupt things all day long. But they seem to point at the church as being the most corrupt institution. That the church is full of hypocrites. The church only wants money. The church only cares about itself. The church is full of hate and bigotry because we speak out on sin. And I believe some of that, because some of the methods that some people claiming to be Christians use and some churches, quote-unquote churches use, probably warrant this assertion that it's hate and bigotry because they do come across hateful and bigoted. But that's not the way the church is supposed to be. The church hates sin and will tell you that sin is bad and what you're doing is wrong. But it doesn't hate you. And want, it tells you that in an effort to get you to repent. And that's what Jesus does in all these letters here. My friend and I were talking the other day, and we both agree that America probably thinks more highly of the cult of Mormonism than it does of true Christianity. That tells you that when something as corrupt as a cult can take a coveted place of honor in society, what has happened to that society? But I think more importantly, more telling, what has happened to the true church where corrupt church takes its place. And this will probably step on a lot of toes. Thankfully, no toes in here at the moment. But the Catholic church. And when I say Catholic church, I, I call it a church because that's what they call themselves. Do I believe they're the church? I would be hard, I would be hard pressed to believe it or be convinced that they are a true church. But look at what happens amongst this church, this so-called institution of God, that the world thinks is more authentic than uh, evangelicalism. Sex abuse. The abuse of power throughout history. Remember that the church, the Catholic church, held to Latin so only the educated priests would understand the words of God and the priests would disseminate the word of God. And not in the language of the normal people. And yet, today we have the Bible and it's available to everyone, for everyone. They wanted that power. They were very rich. You could pay money to get out of things. They were full of works, both for salvation, meaning do this and you'll be forgiven, but also as a church. The Catholic Church has done a lot of great things in society. They stand up for pro-life and for babies that are unborn. You know, I don't know evangelicals with a pro-life bumper sticker, but I could probably count every day a Catholic car that's got one on it. 
many charities. They're very active in the public life, a lot of works. And it's interesting, because if we look at the Church of Thyatira, as some scholars might say, the period was uh, AD 600 to 1517. Uh, some would even put the Irish St. Columba as the head of this church. Uh, the little research that didn't have me seem like a legit Catholic, uh, but he did some good things in Ireland. Go Ireland. But during this time, 600 to 1517, really 300 and, and, and before that, the Catholic Church really rose to power across Europe. That this combination uh, of the Catholic Church or the Christianity being taken over as the official Roman uh, uh, religion and kind of taking on the different holidays and, and Christianizing them really came to power amongst Europe. As the Roman Empire fell, the Catholic Church remained in Europe in power and through the other similar uh, denominations. That during this time, in the middle of this time, there were the Crusades. And today you'd be taught that the Crusades was some unjust thing by Europe into the Middle East and the Muslims did no wrong. But really it was a war back and forth of its time. I'm not saying that it was the right thing to do, but, we, but that Europe wanted the Holy Land. They wanted God's land that they fought for. And I don't know that it was gone about in the right way. I'm not saying any of that. And there were atrocities. But it wasn't just Europe going to the Middle East. It was the Middle East attacking Europe and the fallen Roman Empire. If we see, if you look at a map of all the attacks that went on, they were all over the place. North Africa, Europe, uh, incursions in both ways. And it's interesting because the war on terror today is very similar. It's the Western world versus the Middle East. There are both large war campaigns with armies and soldiers, but also terrorist acts. It's very similar to the Crusades. I'd almost say that in the Muslim mind, whether spiritually or physically, it might even be considered a modern crusade, a jihad. As the Wikipedia puts it, the Dark Ages is a historical periodization traditionally referring to the Middle Ages that asserts that a demographic, cultural, and economic deterioration occurred in Western Europe following the decline of the Roman Empire. We all know the Renaissance, right? The Renaissance meaning rebirth. Where some art and science and learning and knowledge and literacy came back into culture, uh, cleanliness and good habits. And we began to come out of this, this culture that bred uh, poverty and disease and war. Um, there's even conspiracy theories that this time period didn't exist because there's no records of it. But the Dark Ages was a dark time. The Roman Empire physically went away and with it went all the enlightenment and the good things that were a part of it. But spiritually, I believe the Catholic Church, the spiritual arm of the Roman Empire, has persisted through the Dark Ages even to this day. And with these things in consideration as we get into uh, the Word of God, it's important that we measure ourselves by God's standards and not our own. Because if we keep measuring ourselves by our own standards, when we fail or falter, we'll change our standard. When we realize, oh, I... You know, it's the new year, people get a gym membership. I'm going to go every day. Okay, well, I went three days last week, so I'll go three days this week. You go two days that week. Okay, I'll go two days this week. And then eventually you're not going at all, right? We can't hold ourselves to our own standards. This is going to change. And that's the same way as believers. We cannot look to the church to define us and as leaders, so to speak, to give us a moral compass. It has to be God's word. The church leaders and the, the church itself, it doesn't matter if you're what a position you're in, you're the church. We have to hold ourselves to God's word. 
And yes, we should be encouraged and corrected and convicted and, you know, not compare uh, our church to another church, and so to speak, but we do need to hold each other accountable and that to God's word. But just because another church is doing it doesn't mean it's right. Just because everything looks like they're doing everything right on the outside, every work that they're doing, because they have a good reputation in the world, means that spiritually they've got anything going for them. Because it has to be all based on God's word and on what God sees and not what man sees, right? Because man looks on the outside, but God looks on the inside, on the heart. Again, because if it's not, we're going to drift and drift and drift and drift. And Lord, help us not to drift. Help us to hold fast to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Revelation 2, 18 through 29, and then we'll come back and look uh, at each section individually. Verse 18 says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, remember that word angel is messenger, write, These things say the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you who say, uh, now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I have also received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We see that Jesus introdu introduces himself to the corrupt church as the Son of God. The Son of God says, this is the one who you're dealing with. This is the one who is speaking, the Son of God of God. And I believe it's important to remember who Jesus is in our own worship, uh, personally and together as the church, that, you know, when we're praying, when we're reading, when we're talking about him, we remember who we're talking about, that he's the son of God. He's all powerful. He's our savior. I think we easily forget who we're dealing with. And you'll see people refer to him as the man upstairs. Treat him like a benevolent grandfather, so to speak. You know, they'll say, well, God is love. But I believe you've forgotten who you're dealing with. This man, this son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, feet like fine brass. These are symbols of judgment. The brass, and before the temple, there was a molten sea. There was a large uh, brass uh, place to wash uh, before the temple before going in. This judgment. This judgment that would bring cleansing 
to the people. And that's the point of God's judgment with his church and with his people is to cleanse them of their sin. He gave them time to repent. He gave Israel time to repent over and over from their wicked king and wicked deeds. But at some time that time would come to an end and judgment would come in and their enemies would come in and take them. But it was to get them to look back to God and remember, man, where have we fallen from? And to return to that. Because God is also all-powerful. He's all-seeing. He's all-knowing. And he's able to justly and rightly bring that judgment. He can do that because he's a loving God. Because he's an all-powerful God. Because God's love is not without judgment. A loving God has to have a side of judgment. If I love my kids, I will discipline them. Because if I don't discipline them, it shows that I don't love them. That I don't care if they get in trouble. I don't care if they ruin their lives. They can do whatever they want, be whoever they want. And I want them to do whatever they want and be whoever they want, but it has to be in the right way. And that's why judgment comes. That's why there's discipline. And on the flip side, God can't justly judge without being loving as well. He'll just judge everyone to condemnation and be done with it. But because God loves, he does that judgment in a righteous way. And I know that our sake, that's probably the hardest thing about being a judge on this earth, is how do you judge these people you don't love? criminal comes in and does this thing how do you i don't know if i could do that (laughs) you know but with that god can see everything we're doing and more importantly he sees why we're doing it like we said man looks on the outside but god looks on the heart i can see what you're doing i can try and use psychology and my my own experience and history to try and figure out why you're doing it but i'll never know for sure i might have a guess but People are very tricky, are very deceptive and can fool you as to why they're doing it because they're even fooled themselves into why they're doing it. You know, we were watching Little House on the Prairie. Uh, I love that show. We're only like season two. We watched like every episode so far. Um, but the dad wants to take out a loan because he's helping build a bank in town. And he's not wanting to take out loans uh, because he wants to buy more acres so that they can live solely off their farm. He figures if he can farm more, they can sell more and they can live solely off it. Uh, so he wants to do something that he's not used to doing. And when the banker comes to town, he invites him over for supper. And the banker says, why? He's a very tough guy. Why do you want me over? You're new in town? I don't know. You just got here? And the banker's like, I have to take care of my, myself my whole life. I'm fine. And he leaves. And then at, at night, he's having trouble sleeping. And he talk, uh, the dad talks to his wife. And she's like, you're worried that you invited him over because you want to take a loan, right? You know that... He wasn't even sure of his own motive. Was he just inviting him over because he wants to have a loan? Or was he inviting him over because he really thought that this man needed a warm supper and a friend in the new town? And that's us. God can tell the difference. God's word can rightly divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. Because he knows. It says that he knows, Thyatira, your works. What they're doing. Their love. How they love each other and care for each other. Their service, how they serve each other, how they serve the people around them, how they are a church full of works, full of faith. This church, this corrupt church has faith, has patience. You and I, I don't know how much faith and patience we have, and I don't know that we're as corrupt as this church. All these things are really wonderful things that the church should exhibit, should have. And I think it's interesting that Jesus starts with works, And he also ends with works. He says that the works they're doing now are even more than when they started out. That they're just doing more and more work. They're doing this work. They're doing that work. They've got this job. They've got this service. They've got this outreach. 
They've got this charity and another charity and another soup kitchen. And it's fantastic. And he sees all that. And he commends them for it. But if we were judged solely upon works, Thyatira would have been the church that gets an A++ and extra credit. You guys have done some great works. If you think about the Pharisees, Jesus said uh, with his disciples, they're like, your righteousness is going to have to exceed that of the Pharisees and Sadducees. If you want to enter heaven, that. these guys get the law down pat. They do all the things. They follow the rules. They do it outwardly perfectly. But inwardly, they're an open sepulcher. Because works aren't the main thing. They're not what really counts in the end. It's, a, it's why we did the works. And it's interesting here that love, service, faith, and patience don't come before the works in the list. And these things probably should come before them in the list. Because then the works would be fueled by the right thing, I believe. And I believe that they were doing good things here, that there were some other things that were off. And it's hard for me to really grasp that, as we'll see, a church that is this off can get other things so right. I don't, I don't know how that works. You know, I've heard stories of pastors who have been doing awful things for decades, and their church is growing and flourishing. People come to them, and they lead conferences, and they pray, and then they get found out for what they've been doing. And I'm like, I really sense God speaking to that message, and that made a lot of sense. And I saw them pray, and it looked totally genuine. I don't know how, I can't reconcile that. I can't let it stumble me either. Because it's God is the judge, right? Because sometimes we can do good things like charitable works, but they weren't in love and service and faith or patience towards God. Maybe it's towards something else, towards an agenda, towards a feeling, towards an emotion, towards a relationship. We have a friend who has this. We have a kid who has this. And so this is why we're a part of this autism charity. Well, that's great. That's fantastic. But is your what's your motive? I can't be the judge of that. But could it be because you want your kid better? And I don't blame you. I want my child better. I want my kids better all the time. The things I have to go through. I mean, I had some tooth problems, and I couldn't wait for her to get to the dentist and get it sorted out and fixed. So I can only imagine for something as life-consuming as something else. But these works and charities, these are not from salvation, they're for salvation. Sometimes. I'm not saying they should stop or be changed or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, sometimes it's our motives aren't as holy as we make them out to be. James talks about this, the half-brother of Jesus in James 2. He says, What is the prophet, my brother? Some says he has faith but does not have works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He's saying, if you say you believe in God, but you're not doing anything about it, you don't really have faith. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you not see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? 
And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out the other way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And I believe that works without faith are dead as well. That if you do works, but it's not based on your faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, the works you do are dead because they're meant to prop you up. They're meant to save you. Because works are important, but only when they come from that true faith. Not when they're in the place of faith. Works can't replace faith. But faith needs to be like, have you ever had a blow pop or, a, you know, a tootsie roll pop? Faith's got to be the center that you're, you know, that, that those works are working for. They should come from our salvation. We do works out of gratitude because we've been saved. God, thank you for saving me. Of course, I'll give my life to do this for you. How could I not? After, If we read the Bible and as you read it and your life doesn't change, you don't begin to do things differently. I don't think you believe what you're reading. It's the same thing. It's probably why I don't pick up a diet book because I don't want to read it. But if you pick up a diet book and you begin to read these, this, this, and this, whether it's right or wrong, and you don't change it, you can't say... I can't say that I'm a keto diet professional because I don't do any of that stuff. But merely because we are saved, we are now free to work for someone else's salvation. A lot of people come to your door and preach to you salvation. And it's supposed to be for you to get saved, but their motive is that they would get saved. That their work in bringing you to faith would somehow save them and get them extra points to get them to their heaven. That's not works on faith. That's works-based salvation. And that's not salvation at all. But Jesus says, nevertheless, he's got two great verses of condemnation. I mean, sorry, commendation. And then ten verses of correction. Or... I don't know what's going on back there. Uh, so two verses of commendation and ten verses of correction. Nevertheless, got a lot of good things to say about you in two sentences, but we got the rest of this to look at, he says. He says, I have a few things against you. Have you ever held something against someone? It's usually not something you can let fly or overlook. But this something, you know, I'm not saying you have to hold it over the head, but there's something that happens that your relationship cannot continue with them until this issue has been dealt with. And that's what Jesus says here. Look, our relationship can't continue. You know, you're doing all these works and all this faith and all this other stuff. It's not going to work if this stuff stays around. You're going to be, as we'll see, in great tribulation. He says, because remember, Jesus can remove and will remove a church's lampstand if they don't repent. No matter what good they're doing, the good works don't outweigh the bad. No matter how much good they're doing, it's more than the first. This bad, it's not going to be erased by it. You have to get rid of the bad for the works to count. And he says, you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. You allow her to be a part of the church. I want to touch on this. And another thing, step on some toes. First Timothy 2, 8-15 says, I desire, Paul says to Timothy, therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up the holy hands without wrath and doubting. And in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, 
with proprietary moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Not that they would be not kept and not beautiful, but that their life would not be wrapped up in these beautiful things, that men would not be so busy punching each other that they can't lift their hands in a holy way, that their hands would be to holy things, that they would be free to raise them in prayer. In the same way there are women, women's bodies would not be given to be just be trophies or something to look at, but something that is more adorned with godly things than it is adorned with makeup and braided hair. Do I think if you have your hair in a ponytail and you're in sin? No. But let's truthfully and honestly think about this and consider this in the Lord. It says, let a woman learn in silence or all submission. It means like in church, not to jump up. What does that mean? You know, ask your husband later. Have your husband and you talk it out. He might have the same question. Right? Maybe he wasn't paying attention. You'll wake him up. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And he says, this is why, guys. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. He says that Eve was deceived by Satan. Adam knew what he was doing. He knew right and wrong. And he still did it. I don't know what that says, but she really thought she was doing the right thing when she listened to Satan. And that's why Paul says that a woman can't be a teacher over the church. Because she tried to be a teacher in the garden. And Adam went along with it, even though he knew it was wrong. And a woman can be deceived. You know, I ever go out like for sales. Just watch the salesman try and target the woman and try and get the woman without the husband's input. Or he'll try to convince her. And a woman and women are equal to men in the scriptures. Equal in importance, different in role. That's not a value thing. It's not a, when, we, when I say position, I don't mean one is over the other in an authoritarian dictatorship. It's supposed to be a partnership. But it's, that's the one place a woman is not supposed to be in church, is the head pastor teaching the word of God to a body, leading the body. It's not for them. Because of the garden. Because of what happened there. Women don't like that. It's hard to say it, but I mean, that's what can I say? That's what God's word says. But a woman can have, has a great place in the church. And the greatest place in church is not the pulpit. There's a lot of authority and responsibility to it, but it's not the greatest place. You want a greatest place? <laughs> Go sit in a seat. Don't do anything. You've got the highest seat, right? Take care of the kids. Kids are closest to God, right? It's just not that place of leading the entire church. That burden is for men. Not that a woman can't teach the kids or young women. They should. They're exhorted to. There are many godly women who lead godly ministries and write godly books. But as far as being an ordained as a pastor, I know many uh, denominations do that. People I'm friends with. Their wives are ordained. I'm, I'm not going to fight them over that. The wife's not being, you know, fine. You want, if you want to do that? Fine. Okay. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put my hand on it, but I'm not going to sit and cause a division over it. You know, if, if this wife was the headmaster of a church, I might say something to him. 
but they're doing ministry. There's fruit in the ministry. God is bringing many people to faith through them. So in that sense, I don't have a problem with it. But if God ever brings people for me to ordain, it's not going to be a woman. In the sense of being a pastor, sure, I'll ordain over many other things, but not that. That's what the scripture says. In fact, I think men are not doing their job if a woman feels like she has to take that role. What does the role of the man look like in the church where a woman feels like she's being called from God to be a pastor? What are the men doing? What's being preached? Is anything being preached or is it just emotion? I find it interesting that the Catholic Church puts Mary in such high esteem in some denominations of Catholicism, a co-redemptrix with Jesus. But they both tag-teamed your salvation. No. No. Jesus is your salvation. And this woman, Jezebel, calls herself a prophetess. I'm a prophetess. Come hear me. Come listen. What I'm saying is the word of God. Up there. Be wary of any of those who call themselves a prophet. I'm ordained. I sometimes look at the wall and I go, I guess it must be true. I'm going to keep going to work, so to speak. But am I going to say I'm a prophet of God? I'm, a, I'm your pastor? No. No. Sure, will I pastor you? Absolutely. Will I try and help you in the Word of God? Absolutely. Do I feel like there are probably some people in my life that that's sort of what my role is? Absolutely. But am I going to hold that over them? Am I going to slap it on the wall? Do I introduce myself as Pastor Tim? No, I, I, I might online or an email or something just to, you know, if, it's, if I feel like it's needed. But if I introduce you on the street, telling you that I'm a pastor is one of the last things that comes out of my mouth because I want you to get to know me a little bit before I shock you with that. Because a prophet of God needs no honor for themselves. They simply tell God's word like it is. And the fruit of their words coming to pass is the evidence that they're a prophet. Not that they've got a banner outside, come see the prophet this Sunday. Maybe they are, I don't know. But there's so many prophets and healers and evangelists these days. I don't think you need that title. Do the work. Don't just go on tour for a paycheck fleecing the flock. So remember, this first church, this letter was written to an actual church body in Thyatira. That there is an actual woman there claiming to be a prophetess of God. And clearly, she was anything but. Her name might have been something different. But spiritually, she was just like Queen Jezebel of ancient Israel. Uh, who was extremely evil, worshipped Baal, and wanted the true prophets of God dead. And it's interesting, the commentary points out, she might have even been the pastor's wife. I feel like I've seen this before in other churches. I feel like I've seen this happen where there's a pastor who's strong, but his wife is just as brazen, speaking these things of God that on the surface sound great, but just never sat right in my stomach. I see other uh, women of God who I know love God, but are taking it just too far. There's guys who do it too. It's the only thing I'm picking on just the women, but that's what we're talking about today. There's plenty of guys I've met who think they were ordained and they're not, think they're prophets or not. But she believed she was a prophetess. 
And more than that, this body of believers in Thyatira treated her as if she was some oracle of God. They treated above her station and platform, and they believed the message of God. They believed that the message that came out of her mouth was a message direct from God himself. Some calls them a prophetess. They're saying, these are the words of God himself to say, oh, Lord, God says that you should go do this. He just told me that. I don't think that's going to happen most of the time. Sometimes you might get a word of knowledge. There's been times when I'm in prayer groups and I feel like the Lord gives me a word to say like in that. But am I going to sit there and slap a label on it and go up in front of the whole church and say, let God prove that out. I say it very trepidatiously. But boy, I tell you, there's a lot going around today that they don't traipse around it so much. There's a lot of false prophets. There's a lot of women really trying hard to get you to believe that their message is holy inside the church and out. It's funny, we were at a thing recently and there was a, a female reverend, so to speak, speaking. And she was saying, not say nothing was wrong, but you couldn't track with it. There was no like spiritual flow to it. And just it just seemed forced. She didn't say anything wrong. It just seems so forced. And I feel like that's it. It's like, why you got to force this? Like, if the priests wear linen, if God says it's only for certain people, why do we need to change the word of God? Why do we need to alter and corrupt the word of God to say something it doesn't about women being ordained? It doesn't say it. It says the opposite. Why is it so important? Is it not the same heart in the garden? Isn't that what God said to Eve? Your desire is to rule over your husband? I'll be hung as a heretic for that. But is that not what God's word says? Show me where it doesn't. But again, this woman, God's not so mad that she's ordained so much, is that what she's speaking to these people, that she is speaking the things that she claims are of God, that they believe are from God, and what's it leading them to? Sin sexually and idolatry. She's not just leading them in a devotion. She's not leading them in prayer. She's not teaching them the Bible. She is teaching them to outright sin and do the things that God abhors. What was his advice? The commentary talks about in the city there were strong, ingrained socioeconomic culture uh, things where, you know, like this was sort of the same thing in Ephesus, like where the idol makers got mad at the disciples because the people weren't buying idols anymore. The same sort of thing. There was this tie between like the, the architect's guild and the certain idol and sexual immorality. And, you know, this was part of the culture and the calendar. Maybe she was convincing them to be a part of that. She encouraged them to be a part of that. Maybe even she said it was ministry to go do these things. Be careful, believer, where you and I go as a part of quote-unquote ministry. Someone tells you, oh, you should go there and do that. that God will use that. You're not called the minister of the strip club. Maybe your, maybe your wife is outside, but not you inside. You're not called to minister at the club or the bar on Friday night. Maybe you are outside on a soapbox preaching the gospel. But if you, even if you feel you are and you go in there, aren't there other ways to minister other than a place where you're more likely to fall than you are to pull anyone else out? We go back to the motives. Is it not you just wanting to go back to the bar? Is there not just part of you that wants to justify and rationalize, have that Bud Light line? Is that really why you're there? I need to be careful because at work, socioeconomic, we have parties at work. We have a crab feast in the summer. We have um, 
the quote unquote holiday party in the winter. We have other things throughout the year where there's drinking and other things. They open up the they have a whole closet full of alcohol. They open up on Fridays. I'd go get a soda or whatever, but it's like I, the moment it turns from casual party into something ruckus, and it doesn't really do so much anymore, is the moment I'd be out. And it's putting myself in a place where I have to be wise because there's I've had opportunities to minister to these things, but there's other times when it's like anything I say is not going to be remembered at this point. So it's just time to go. And I love hanging out with them because they're my coworkers. And I love just being able to be around them and have that opportunity, but be friends with them. But this lady, this Jezebel, she corrupted them. And she used the word of God as her platform and as her profession of prophecy as an excuse to do so. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Paul's saying this to Pastor Timothy. Be diligent. Do everything you can that when you stand before God, you're approved of him and you're okay with him and you're forgiven by him and you've understood the word that he's spoken to you and taught you and you're following it yourself, your faith and your works line up. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That when, when I come to the Bible, I pray that I'm able to rightly open this book up and rightly proclaim what it's saying and not something else. And I'm sure I don't do it perfect all the time. Hopefully a smidgen comes out rightly. Remember, this is a problem, with a, especially with this woman who is sexually and spiritually immoral, who's taking authority that's not hers spiritually in the church. Just even if she's a pastor's wife, it doesn't give her authority over the church. And she's using it to corrupt people and corrupt the whole church and corrupt the city and corrupt anyone else who would come to faith because she's so prominent. She's got her TV show. She's got her top 10 books. She's on Oprah as this spiritual guru. She's, oh, a woman. Oh, this is, think about all the fame. Women don't do this. And you're a woman who does this. This, oh, think about all the fame and pats on the back she's getting and what kind of glory she's reveling in. If you remember, even the garden, Satan deceived her into what? Wrongly dividing, wrongly translating the word of God. Did God really say to Eve? No, no, no. This is what he really meant by it. And it was her own benefit, quote unquote, that went down the trail of right dividing. Don't think that she is not reaping the benefits of this. Maybe she's adulterous. Maybe she gets all the clout over her husband or over the church or whatever her desire is. She's getting it. The more she wrongly divides the word, the more attention she gets. And she's like, oh, this is the Lord. This, she's deceived. And maybe Jezebel, she's not. Maybe she knows. There's some that know and some that don't know. But this benefit which she ate from the tree is really her own downfall. And more than that, the downfall of the man around her and the men around her. Acts 15, 19 through 20. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled from blood. Has she not read, read the letter of Acts? You guys aren't to be doing idolatry. Not sexual immorality. You don't do any other laws. These two things, guys. I don't care how wicked your society is. You committing these uh, immoral acts, spiritually and, and physically, is not going to get anyone saved. It's not more spiritual if you engage in these things that God clearly says not. And I think today, people who engage in the sexual immoral and even ordain it, think that they're somehow more spiritual than the fundamentalist church 
It says the Bible says, no, you're not more enlightened. You're deceived. You're wicked. Verse 21, Jesus says he gave her time to repent from sexual morality. And God always gives us time to repent. And that is God's grace and love. He didn't strike her down the first time she went up and said, I'm a prophetess. Not even the second time, the third time, the fourth time. He personally gave her time. He personally convicted her and brought people to say things to her. And when she was in the Word, whenever it was, when she was praying, God would bring these things up to her. But she pushed it away. She pushed it out of her conscience. She hardened her heart. Maybe she took that non-punishment for approval. And we need to be very careful of doing this in our lives. That just because nothing bad has happened on the path we're on doesn't mean that it's God's approval for you and I. Oh, I've been sleeping with my girlfriend. Nothing bad's happened yet. Doesn't mean God approves of it. Because God does not approve of the things he does not approve of. And he's very clear about what he approves of and what he doesn't approve of. What's holy and what's not holy. These things, not, it's not just his opinion. It's not just because he feels like it. It's because it's truth. These things line up and they have all these different facets and connections that make sense. And if we begin to twist one, it, the whole thing breaks. We cannot twist his word to justify those things. It's interesting that he casts her into a sick bed. She's sick from the sexual immorality. Talking about people doing communion and stuff and idolatry and they died from it. In the Old Testament, God struck down kings and many others with sickness, worms in the bowels and other things that they would die from when they did not repent, when they were leading God's people astray. Was it a, a sickbed of adultery? It's a word could also mean banqueting couch, this idea of this immoral, immoral parties and idol worship and essentially the very couch she could be reclining on giving her profiting things is the very one she's sick in. I think this verse that says uh, 22, it says, uh, I will indeed cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Is he saying that the whole city was sleeping with her? No, I think it's about you know, if you look in the Bible, idolatry and sexual morality are tied together. That that was, idolatry was like having sexual morality against God. And these people have done that and bought into her system, bought into her teaching, her theology. And he's saying, if you guys don't repent, you're going to have great tribulation. She's not a sickbed, but you're going to have great tribulation. I have to wonder, does this church miss out on the rapture? And go through the great tribulation. We have different views, pre, post, ah, all this other stuff for the money. And I, I think it's kind of a mix of all of them. Some are going to be raptured. Some won't be around for it. And others are going to go marching headlong into the tribulation. Unless they repent. Makes the most sense to me. And people in the Catholic system think they're good with God, but mostly they're not. They're great people. They're good people. They do good things. They might even be more moral than me in times. And more outspoken about their faith, so to, so to speak. But you can't subscribe to a system of works, of idol worship, of Mary worship, of confession to man, instead of God, and, and somehow be okay with the real Redemptor. For time, we won't go there, but turn to Revelation 18 and read about Babylon, the world system, and the picture is very same to, to this Thyatira, this corruptness. We'll get there in about six years when we get to Revelation 18. 
But the connection between the world system and her being an adulteress, a seductress, a Jezebel of sorts, Satan uses the world system and the world mourns is lost when it fails. It says her children will suffer as well. I believe her physical and her spiritual children are affected by this. And it says it's the God who searches the minds. He's looking right in everyone's mind, what they're thinking, what they're doing, and he knows what's going on. Just like the, the priest in the Old Testament, he shows the prophet in the wall and all these disgusting pictures on the wall. He goes, this is the mind of the priest, prophet. And is this meant to prove anything to the world around them? No. He says her judgment is for the church at large to see. He's saying this is happening that the church might see that this is wrong. And look what's happening in the Catholic quote-unquote church today. Is that not for us as the Protestant believing church to say, we got to get God's word right. You're supposed to be married. You're not supposed to have all the power. There's something wrong here. Verse two, uh, chapter 2, 23 says, Each one according to your works. That they relied so heavily on their works, Jesus showing them that their real work was immorality. And he's trying to show them, I don't think you want to get paid for that work, guys. You want to get paid for the righteous work. And he calls out those who don't follow her. He says to everyone else in the church in the city that have not prescribed to her false doctrine, have not known the depths of Satan. Sometimes we'd like to think of the depths of Satan as Marilyn Manson or some Wicca party or, you know, a pentagram or something. I think the depths of Satan is when Satan corrupts the church with sexual immorality and idolatry. The depths of Satan is when the church says, it's okay to live like this. Let's have a yoga class in the middle of the church. Look at all the denominations that endorse these things and ordain them. This is the depths of Satan. Satan has infiltrated the church, made it what it's not supposed to be, a den of wickedness. Talked about the throne of Satan last week. I hate to have Satan's throne be the church. That's, don't you think that's what he wants? He wants God's throne? It's obvious. And the church goes, oh, no, 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 this is good. We're deceived. Because it's even worse when the church endorses it and when it's in the world, like Paul says in Corinthians. You guys, the world doesn't even have a name for this immorality, and you guys are accepting it. Is that not the depths of Satan? And the commentary, David Guzik says, how could Christians ever fall for the depths of Satan? Perhaps the deceptive reasoning went this way. Perhaps this is what they were thinking, he's saying. To effectively confront Satan, you must enter his strongholds and learn his depths in order to conquer them. People just, you just tell Satan that you're not going to have a good, bad day today, that you are... The church does these things. People use similar reasoning and misguided spiritual warfare today. The Bible says, no, no, no. Even the Archangel Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. You and I have nothing to do with Satan and the strongholds. That is God's territory. That is the angel's domain. You and I hang out here in the word and worship at his altar. And how many of these false prophets will teach you otherwise? Self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses. I love how Jesus says, as they say, that Jesus uses their own local slang and terminology here. He knows all and is fully acquainted with what they talk about and how they talk. He says, as they say, you know, he knows what's going on there. He gets it. He's not wrong in what he's telling them here. He understands their culture more than they do. And his command and exhortation to those who are not falling into this wickedness, hold fast what you have until I come. And sometimes we just have to hang on 
for dear life. I don't know if you've ever been on a roller coaster and you thought it was a great idea. And then you go over the top, you're like, this is not a great idea. And you, all, there's nothing you can do. You got to hang on, hold on fast to the end. And that's kind of like Christianity. I think sometimes we get on board, like, oh, this is going to be a great idea. I mean, a Christian, my life's going to be better. And then you start getting up higher. Oh, there's a lot of stuff going wrong. <laughs> Whoa! And you just hang on. That's what he says. Hang on for dear life. Don't be the false prophet who stands up and says everything's okay. Hang on. Because believer, the church goes wrong. The world is bad. And you and I, as believers, are the only ones left to hang on to God's word. So hang on. You're the one who's supposed to hang on to it until he returns. Do not give up. I know that it's dark. I know that the church has become corrupt. But hang on. Keep his works. Jesus says that he's got works and there are people in Thyatira who are actually working for him. And there are others there who only think they are working for him. He says that the people who make it through are going to have power over the nations. That the church today has lost its influence and the nations are prevailing against it. And the great tribulation is going to be the worst it's ever seen. The world system is going to persecute the church and believers like never before. But it's not over there. That after that, in the thousand year reign of Jesus, it's going to be rod of iron enforced righteousness. And I believe the tribulation saints, those who get saved in the tribulation, maybe even the church of Thyatira, who get saved in that hard time, are going to be the ones riding around in that millennial kingdom enforcing righteousness. And perhaps even you and I, depending on how it works out, depending on how you translate it. But in that thousand year reign of Jesus, after he comes back and locks Satan up for a thousand years, people are not going to be able to choose wrong. It's going to be enforced. It's going to be that utopia of heavenly righteousness showing that Jesus can be a good king. And after a thousand years, he's going to say, do you still want to follow me or not? And there's going to be people who don't want it, who want it the way it was before. And then that's when the judgment comes. And Jesus wraps it up again. He says, he who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember that this is not just for them and their day and age 2,000 years ago. This is for the church throughout all history. And even today, why do you think Jesus had John write this 2,000 years ago? And so we'd have it. It didn't come at the end. It didn't come in the last days. It came 2,000 years ago. And we need to hear what God is saying to us as his church. Amen? God bless your church. May we repent and do the first works and love you, but also hang fast to your word. No matter what the church says about your word, no matter what the world says about your word, may we as your, your children hang on to it until you return. May we be found faithful when you return. Find faith in us on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for us soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until